Today's show will be manned by Fulu and Kate Martin-Williams. Our good friend and co-host Jessica Cole will not be on the show today, but please enjoy our interview with Leslie Contreras-Schwartz. You sound like you're on drugs. <laughs> with surrealism. <laughs> and or just no. No. I would love to be the type of writer like Zadie Smith. And maybe a Who you, doesn't want him to be the type of writer like Zadie, Zadie Smith? No. How are you able to make a living and, and rich? He, <laughs> he I'm rich, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. Today's guest is Leslie Contreras-Schwartz. She is a poet and essayist whose work has appeared in Catapult, Tinderbox Poetry Journal, Verse Daily, and the Texas Review, among others. And she was recently named an interviews editor at American Micro Reviews and Interviews. The poems in her latest collection, Night Bloom and Cenote, interrogate the ravages of abuse, destructive floodwater, illness, and womanhood. The press for this book says Schwartz questions the truth behind any survival. I believe I sat down to read Night Bloom and Cenote having just a few minutes to sit with a couple poems and found myself there an hour and a half later having been devoured by them in one sitting, unable to leave them. These poems move you in all the ways poetry should, sometimes with quiet abandon, and sometimes they crash into you like so many greedy waves taking mouthfuls of sand from the shore. Schwartz took my hand and did not let go. It may not always be okay, but we were never promised that. Instead, what we have in front of us is the only thing. And so, as she tells us in her poem, We Pulls in Body, even though it may be in a broken choir, we sing, we sing, we sing. Leslie Contreras Schwartz, we are so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're so lucky. I wanted to start today by asking about the juxtaposition of, of soft against hard in your poetry. There's liquid and flesh, pain against comfort, especially in Night Bloom and Cenote. The poem Tender really affected me. Would you mind reading that? Sure. My mother showed me the small closet of herself. She stood there, child thin, in a shift dress. Her blade of tenderness the pain of a blow that made everything more colored. Her black winged bangs, a blur of hands, pink crush that could take the wind out and fill me with broken things. This would take me to the winter night of a school parking lot where I was led to the shadow of a lamplight post, the empty classroom, windows darkened from the want of children, ghost faces seeking the same tenderness, the cold flesh like a living thing, a child's body folded inside that living thing, and my tender knees, the gravel that pierces them, to remind them how easy they cut, the other working in his cutting, as if he sought to be buried 
Beneath my 15 years, the careful carving. This is the kindness I have carried inside like a birdhouse in its flurry of wings, not even separate beatings of hundreds of birds, but a thunderous pulse that has found me now holding my newborn daughter in faintly lit dawn her hair like singed down between my fingers. What can I find here? Draw tenderness out of a cracked well. Imagine the stillness of water in its silvery and solid room. Yes, once my father brushed my hair until the curls separated and frizzed, its tangled rise beneath his dark hands comfort in the browned veins when he held me against his ribs as wind cleaned the city around us. When he came home at dusk, I'd wait for the night when he turned the pages to my book, careful that I could see every page. I rock her in my arms, hum a tune with no melody, my throat warming up to match her small cry. A turn for a turn, enough to last the hour I rock her, its gentle tick and hurt. Hmm. I think it, it really crystallizes for me this thing that happens when you're staring at your child where, you know, this little newborn represents all the possibilities for good life and happiness and joy that comes that innocent joy that comes from children but then pushed up against as you do the experiences that you have and that so many of us have had as you know children not yet formed as adults and so I just wonder how that takes form for you in writing so I, I really try to address in this book the ideas behind raising children in how to do that if you do not feel like you have the resources or were given the resources or and have no map or, or guidance. And so I, I'm not sure that I have a specific answer because a lot of it was just trying to capture the experience. You have this child, you have this, these children and they can be formed in any way and you the desire is there but there there's something about lacking the tools that mm -hmm. is is disturbing mm -hmm. or not being quite sure if you're doing the right thing mm -hmm. but not wanting to repeat the past sure yeah i had that thought too about how you i guess balance riding your way out of a painful history and you know, you're writing your way out of it versus documenting it yes. so that it is on paper and can't be denied and is, is part of the narrative there in black and white. I think one of the faults that I have as a writer that I know of is um, writing about really heavy topics but doing it in a way that connects with an audience and it isn't in some deep interior space that doesn't connect with other people because that's easy to do and then it comes across as like overwrought or sentimental or not necessarily 
something that everyone has access into. Mm. So I think over the years I've learned that writing is not necessarily therapeutic. It can have therapeutic results. But as a craft, I, I try to to focus on the complexities of the situation or the idea that I'm trying to grapple with. And that that involves access to all parts of my mind. So logic in considering initial responses or emotions or considering the emotions within emotions, all those little nuances of lived experiences when they're very so vivid and colorful to really try to capture it and document it, like mm-hmm. you said, it involves a lot more than we initially anticipate. Mm-hmm. And for me, that that's the really fulfilling part of writing is that I, I don't always know what I'm going to, to, to get when I sit down to write something and just follow the associative leaps of my mind and try to create something that readers could understand and to find their way in and I don't I don't know where it will take me and that's the exciting part Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think for me certainly as my experience as a reader of your work and also a mother was that though our histories are not the same I think there are some very human things about that unknowing how to mother and just seeing it on the page for me was was a way in it was easy for me to find a way in because I was like, oh yeah, I'm not alone. This isn't like a scary thing that I have to keep inside. I know that there are other moms who are doing the same, you know, having the same experiences. And I think that's the great thing about good art, right? Is that, that we can come together in that way, even if it's hard. Yes. Really freaking hard. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Even as a male reader, there are certain things I... I connected with because you helped me connect it with in your description of the soccer moms and the yoga pants yeah. and <laughs> uh, taking them to school and and the difficulty of just doing that and surviving and so those sorts of things help me connect. I, I I do I know that there are specific situations where most readers well they well I have no idea. So the, in that, in those types of situations in a poem, I will try to guide the reader and say, okay, this is what's happening. But I don't, I have to, you know, try really hard to not assume that the emotion I'm trying to elicit is necessarily going to to be elicited. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of work to try to bring the reader in initially. Mm-hmm. Before we get too far along, can you just talk about the title? Sure. I, I'd never heard of Cenote before, and where did you, where did that come from? So I did a study in Mexico for a semester in the Yucatan, and there are these underground pools of water, um, which can be very deep, basically limestone collapsed in or filled in with water, and the Mayans supposedly used to sacrifice virgins or young boys, boys and girls there. And I was always fascinated by this symbol in the fact that it doesn't look very deep. Like you have no idea how deep it is when you see it. 
and just this disturbing history of mm-hmm. possible sacrifices or it's been said the Spanish maybe made that up <laughs> to kind of demonize their religious practices but regardless I like the image of something having great depth and not appearing so mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. having secrets and then the night bloom was partially about the image that's weaved throughout about the night blooming jasmine I referred to it several times. Fu and I were reading actually a, a litany, a song, January 2017. Mm-hmm. And in it, you include this patchwork of blessings and petitions in many different languages, Spanish, Vietnamese, Arabic, German. Can you talk to us about the inspiration of that? Sure. Poem? So the, the date is January 2017. So it was right after a new president was elected. Mm-hmm. And... Around the time, around the time that these restrictions on immigration and uh, current, you know, people who are under current visas were starting to have to come up against, and I think from about November to maybe that spring, I was trying to figure out how to talk about just this communal feeling of grief or fear and an appeal. So that litany came out as sort of a a prayer that things looked like they were going (laughs) to go really badly. And to also call upon like the history of our country as being formed by all these immigrants. I mean, I I said in the notes, I feel like it felt very Houston to me that Mm -hmm. there was we live in this such a strange city where there's, you know, it's a blue city, but it's also very conservative and yes. very supportive of the current administration. And so you, you're constantly rubbing up against yes. those sort of boundaries in our world. But then at the same time, we do have such a diverse population that, you know, you just never know who or what your neighbor's thinking. Yes. And in a way, it was like, let's just, can we just get together and... and I do think that there is an undercurrent of fear in that poem because the unspoken part of the poem is that something is going to be done to all of these people Mm -hmm. or could possibly. And I guess this goes into the next question, which was I read the interview that is on St. Julian's Press website. Much of what you talk about in the, in the collection is about uh, women and girls. And um, this thing you said in that interview really struck me. You say, if these rules of women and girls being seen as less than human and our bodies to be possessed are deconstructed, where women and girls are neither bodies of service nor bodies of shame, but just bodies as they are and in their own natural existence without moral judgment, what kind of freedom opens up for the way we live? This is something your poetry addresses again and again, and I can't wait to be able to offer that this verse to my kids, you know, so they have a way into the same ways of seeing women and girls I I wondered if you I know you do some outreach in in the city around I have in the past yes sex trafficking here just wondered if you could speak to that sure so I I knew about the prevalence of sex trafficking in the city but I did not know to what extent and how how prevalent like to what degree and our 
basically nine out of ten places where you see massage parlor or something like that it is a place where girls and women and men and boys are being trafficked they're extremely hard to shut down and this is why houston is such a huge how you know it has a, like its own little city of this it can go down any boundary of a residential neighborhood and you'll find them so i had started volunteering before the super bowl the city and a, a bunch of different nonprofits that provide outreach had come together to try to create a campaign to to just make people aware of and to understand the signs knowing that the city was going to yes. have like a huge spotlight because of the Super Bowl coming. Well, also the the activity tends to increase mm-hmm. around big events like that. So I learned a lot. I'm not currently doing outreach, but for a long time, for several years, I did collect a lot of information about sex trafficking in general, which is difficult because there's not a lot of consistent data. And most girls or boys who are trafficked consider themselves eventually sex workers and do not consider themselves victims mm-hmm. or survivors or they just think that, you know, they, they're sex workers. So I wanted to, to capture some of the stories and the things that I learned, but it was very uncomfortable for me. I tried to write a nonfiction story. And even though there were women that were willing, that wanted to share their story, I felt like it didn't feel right because I didn't feel like ultimately I had the privilege of writing it down, selling it, and profiting even if I'm creating awareness. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't that didn't feel right mm-hmm. and I couldn't do it. So currently I'm working on a project of persona poems where I've taken all the information that I know and it's not based on any single person or truth and that way I feel like I can share that information and get people to understand what it is like. I didn't think that writing nonfiction or collecting an inter- like a transcripts of interviews would help more than it would benefit me. Mm-hmm. That's not something I wanted to pursue. It's always an issue when you're talking about social justice or um, real world issues and for me I just I'm not comfortable with that right yeah I get it and there's there are people who do it wholeheartedly and manage to walk that line but for every one of those there's multiple (laughs) others who don't do it as sensitively and and still benefit I think I think the reason that I didn't want to do it is it's really, really hard not to exploit Mm -hmm. the lives of other people. If you're taking away any type of power from them, even if they say, this is my story, you're you're allowed to take it, they're still not in the same position of power as you are. Right, right. It's an unequal relationship. Did I say that you have a short story appearing? I do. Um, so I, that came from the novel that I tried to write about girls who were being trafficked. And it ended up being a short story. 
and it will be in Houston No More, which is edited by Gwendolyn Cepeda. And it's all these stories like uh, the underdogs or crime. In my story, it's about two girls who are friends, and one of them ends up being coerced into you know, the sex industry by a boyfriend, and then her friend comes along. Mm-hmm. But it's more about their relationship, and it's not something, like you read in the newspaper, it's so sensational. Like, someone, usually you think, oh, someone's been abducted, and like, but usually, and often, they have been coerced by a boyfriend or a family relative so that they think that it's a choice. But it's usually by someone who's very dominant, like a, a boyfriend who is abusive or a family friend who they don't want to disappoint. Mm-hmm. So I tried to focus on those relationships. And that'll be out in the spring, you said? I'm not sure. It, yeah, I think uh, in 2019, yeah, I think that might be right. We were going to talk a little bit more about the craft of writing. Do you mind uh, reading another poem? Do you have sure. Late night. It's not for the sun's slow drown out of the world. That melted blanket of too much. It's smoke like smother and turning up of the world. It's peak uncovered, everything lit. It's not this that I'm staying up for. It's too bright to see things clearly under that eyeing star. Like a narcissist, the sun only sees itself in the world reflected. It is for the night's bloom I wait, how it drips liquid and heavy from lamps, thick shadow and long-armed branches, all of it reaching to reveal the underside Underwater cenotes, nocturnal pools held still in leaves, night cups of hurt and stain that I need to look at, want to, how it glistens in me. What flaws, what missteps have I made and kept in its thimble-sized dark leaf? Here I will drink in that night, feel its fluttering moth wings flapping inside me. And in the morning, how I am lifted like a child whose mother has finally come home, laid her suitcase on the tile floor. I hear life's click, that sound of its homecoming, after a night of watching it melt and warp. Mm, so good. You're a writer that writes across genres. Mm-hmm. I read some of your nonfiction essays as well as you've got the short story coming out. When you're struck by a muse, how do you know if it's going to be a, a poem or a short story or an essay? Poetry tends to come easier to me. It's very difficult for me to 
to write prose. So one way that I have found a way through it is I've been writing more lyrical types of essays or stories or speculative stories, stories that are not, that don't have the same framework as uh, realistic stories Mm -hmm. or a linear plot because that is something I, I, I just, I like to read it, but for when I sit down to write it, it's just not what I am, my tendency. I rely heavily on images, on lyric ways of, of writing. And, but although I, I do write nonfiction, but I think that even my nonfiction tends to be slightly more lyrical than other nonfiction. It's just the, my tendency. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's interesting because I, I really enjoyed When a Mystery Illness Strikes, which was your essay in Catapult. And I enjoyed the lyricism for sure in that. So it's funny that it's maybe not your go-to, but it felt it felt very um, natural. And um, thank you. Yeah, it's it's you know you having read your poetry, I can tell a poet wrote it. So <laughs> I know I know you, but or I know your writing, but you you inhabit all those worlds really really well, really easily. It, you know, I would love to be the type of writer like Zadie Smith or. And maybe a who you, doesn't want him to be a writer like Zadie Smith? I know. I I I really admire all of these huge sagas and like being able to create these threaded narratives. But it is definitely something harder for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the future it will get easier because I know I know that my writing always develops based on where I am. Um, so right now I do like to write in all genres um but i tend to when i sit down to write it comes out usually more in lyric form talk to me about writing about and with an illness you write so powerfully about being offered the sort of well-meaning solutions and misplaced advice social media certainly opens us up to a lot more (laughs) yes everyone is a is a Dr. Google, yes, um, <laughs> yes, and there's always a food for it. <laughs> Just eat more ginseng. I think in terms of being a writer, in uh, yes, in terms of being a writer and writing about just being in this space where your body is not always well, for me it adds pressure to write really what's really important to me and to do it while I feel well. Although I, you know, I read this really wonderful collection of essays by Sonia Huber. It's called uh, Pain Woman Takes Your Keys. Mm. And she has a similar type of condition, autoimmune, uh, several autoimmune diseases. And in one of her pieces, she says, pain actually changes her voice. And when she's in deep pain, like she feels like she has some of her best writing because she just does not give a you know what <laughs> she yeah. just mm-hmm. doesn't have time to fuck to, around yes yeah. okay thank you yeah. um, she doesn't hey, have time is allowed, yeah right? yes she doesn't have time to pussyfoot around anything and she just doesn't give a shit And I forget the phrase she uses, but something like, it's like her bitch voice comes out. (laughs) You know, she said when she's feeling okay, 
she's more you know considerate and like tries to like map out something for the audience but when she's in extreme pain her voice gets loud Mm. and oftentimes she said her writing is stronger and I I identify with that a lot because some of the things that people will say that they really liked was written I remember under in extreme pain Mm -hmm. and you know when I'm in those moments and I'm trying to write about something it it there's a lot of pressure to try to connect with people to this experience that a lot of people do not have in that circumstance pain is universal but um the way I experience it is so singular um like all of us but in writing I'm really trying to find a way to connect to other people being sick a lot can make you lonely because you're not like other people so for sure it puts pressure on me to write as best I can in the amount of time yes yes yeah we love to ask about editorial relationships like what it was like working with St. Julian Press who did Fuego your first collection and then was it it, two years later or a year later that they did Night Um, yes two years so I found St. Julian I had been trying to uh, find a publisher for the first book and I met Ron Starbuck who is a wonderful man and a, a huge advocate for poetry and just literature in general and he's very easy to work with which is not always the case with some presses he allowed me a lot of freedom in terms of you know how I wanted things to look and how you know things I wasn't willing to to edit out but his experience in publishing and making a book that everyone can be proud of uh, was reassuring to me I feel like their mission statement is really timely was that one of the things that brought you to them? I, his, the mission statement of creating this, uh, you know, interfaith dialogue and trying to, to, to highlight how literature and art can be used, you know, to improve society or to enrich our lives was something that I definitely appealed to me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask this question. This is sort of a out of left field question. <laughs> Uh, came out of Twitter this morning. There was this interesting conversation that was going on about how writers don't talk about their how they make a living, how, essentially how they put food on the table. Yes. That, and, and we have these writers come in the studio with various backgrounds and different sort of places in their careers, from you know the best-selling writer to the person who just published their you know first chapbook. And so the conversation on Twitter was about this one Salon.com article that a a sort of mid-level writer had written and said, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if if my husband wasn't the one who was putting the food on the table so that I could write. Absolutely. But that same writer had been to a reading where there was a novelist who had had the benefit of a huge fortune that sort of half the audience knew about, but the other half didn't. And someone asked, you know, how are you able to make a living? And and I'm rich. He, <laughs> he responded I'm rich, bitch. By, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he responded by this sort of cagey, 
exclamation that he had worked really hard yes and, you know a bootstrap i think i think response. um but we're so nervous about i know about i think this. a lot of people are still they think that admitting that you have privilege somehow will override any type of effort you put into writing or being a successful writer that is a privilege if you have a partner or spouse who can support you which I know I do um you have more resources to not worry about adjuncting or teaching you know all of these workshops or trying to you know edit people's manuscripts and Put gigs together to support yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. That is very important mm-hmm. because writing takes time and it takes a lot of space and privacy and the ability to experiment. And if you're worried about putting food on the table, that's it's difficult right, um, yeah. to do that. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a parent, be a good parent and, you know, give energy to the other things in your life so I do feel very privileged um you know I went to I had a great education um my husband is in a field so that it helps support us and I'm able to limit the types of work that I do um, to to things related to writing mm-hmm. um And that allows me a lot of time. You know, I have less time than other people because I have three kids. Yeah, yeah. And because Americans in general just don't like talking about things like this because... (laughs) Sex and money, right? Yes, yes. It's it's a taboo subject. But it's important that we recognize how we benefit from things that were not necessarily determined by us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> it's unfair to not to not say, you know, like, shit, I was lucky. Like, yes. At, at a certain point, I yes. was lucky, you know. Absolutely. Whether that be because, like, in my case, our my partner also, you know, makes enough for us to do, to provide for the kids and provide for mm-hmm. our family and allow me to pursue this. But to say that there isn't luck involved in that, you know. Right. And also to sh- just sort of shed light on the fact that um, unless you're a New York Times best-selling author, you know, the pay is not great. Right. And we should right. talk about that. Even right. If you, even if you were able to garner a $20,000 advance, which is, you know, those are fewer and farther between at this point, that still represents a year of your life that you spend yes. on a manuscript if you're lucky. Yes. You know, and that's not a lot of money for a year. Anyway, thanks for being willing to share about that. (laughs) The last section we call books for what ails you. And we just do this sort of speed round. So fire back at will. And I'll ask one question and Fu will ask you the next book you find you hand out and then get immediately jealous of the borrower because oh. you've read it so many times and they well these are not, these are not this this is a, notes. Okay. this is a, <laughs> no, I, I, did I had written i had actually written a list of books because um I'm, te- I'm teaching intro to creative writing at u of h so i had a and i picked 
books that excite me. Oh, nice. Um, I didn't bring my list, of course. <laughs> but to answer your question, I'm kind of stingy when it comes to my books. And even if I have more than one, I don't know. You have to be in like, like a part of <laughs> my family. And even then, like my husband, I'm like, you need to return that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that go that belongs right here. <laughs> but I do recommend books. And the book recently that I've been telling everyone, oh my God, you have to read this, is uh, Rachel McKibben's Blood. It's just, you owe it. You open the book, you read one poem, and you're, like, destroyed for the rest of the day. But it's hard to – and someone would say, why would you want to be destroyed? But it's one of those things that I love about reading something so well-written and so powerful that it makes you think uh, deeply about how you're living your life or how you have lived or – um, and she writes a lot about survival and mental illness, and um, and she's she's just an amazing person. I think she has five kids, or and she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Um, so if I had copies, maybe I will try to Buy start. Can, yeah, I can start stash. carrying the copies of that around. And what's the book on craft you recommend to young poets? Um, so there's two. Um, I would recommend uh, Triggering Town by Richard Hugo. And he writes about the idea that our best writing comes from following our thought associations. Like whatever drives us urgently to put things into words, that should be the, the way that we navigate into writing. Um, because otherwise it will it's just not going to have the energy and he spends a lot of time on different aspects of what that looks like the other one I would recommend is best words best order Mm. by Stephen Dobbins it is extremely (laughs) detailed about how language works in poetry but it's very useful if you're trying to understand things like how does how do line breaks work? Why are they even important? You know, most people think they're arbitrary, but they're not. Everything is a tool. And he talks about each, you know, sound and stanza breaks, all the things that you could use to create pauses to to enhance the meaning of your poem. Author you'd most like to trade places with. I don't know. Zadie Smith, I love her. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know. I think I like being me. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Book that gets you through hard times? I think it changes because my taste in things that used to appeal to me, you know, when I was in graduate school, maybe is not as powerful. It's still powerful. I like Linda Gregg, the poet, but I also... I like reading sagas. So I really like Louise Erdrich mm. and how she we- she weaves all of these uh, characters and the family's lives from generation to generation. Somehow that's comforting to me, even though the stories are not always pleasant. I mean, they're about what ha- you know what happens to families over time. There's a lot of drama. 
but somehow that's very comforting. What's the best editorial marginalia you ever received? Stephen Dobbins was my advisor at graduate school, the one whose book I just recommended. Um, and I remember when I started out at graduate school, I was trying to be very experimental and um, just like kind of like dream writing like uh, Dali where I'm like just writing crap on a page and like, this is art. <laughs> and he wrote something like, you sound like you're on drugs. <laughs> Where's surrealism? <laughs> and or just no. <laughs> no. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank for you for inviting me. Leslie, we appreciate you being here and giving up your time. Sure. Glad to be here. Thank you. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not quite starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. And buy Audible. Stop angry tweeting in traffic. I'm looking at you, Ford Fusion, going west on I-10. Listen to us, and then when you're done, listen to an audiobook from Audible. The title we recommend is Rachel Cusk's exceptional trilogy, beginning with book one, Outline. Effing Shakespeare listeners get a free title with a new membership. Go to audibletrial.com slash Shakespeare and read more widely today. This is take four. I think that's you, Jess. I think that's your kid. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <sighs> take five. <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Mark. I'm Katen. I'm Kaden. 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 How are you, B. Kaden? <laughs>